Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Living Room Logic. Welcome back to Season 2 of Living Room Logic. For part two, Andrew and I chat about the history of addictive disorders in humans and how these issues have flowed well into the modern age. Don't binge the podcast, but follow it or subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts and check out our Facebook, Twitter or Instagram at Living Room Logic to join our logical following. This season is supported by FameLab Ireland. Andrew, thank you for that. That was really good. Um, you looked at this from, from several different directions. It's clearly in a single word, extremely complicated in a single word, I just said too. Um, (laughs) And the interesting thing is that addiction in human society goes back millennia. Yeah. And, and, and like us finding things to, to use and to maybe make life a little bit easier. Because as you said, it's like people look for these things because they kind of, they, they sedate pain, they stop pain, you know, they make it easier. So let's go back thousands of years. The first example, and maybe one of the oldest examples, is, you know, um, in ancient civilizations in Central Asia, they ate hallucinogenic mushrooms called Amanita muscaria, okay? Really? Oh. Ancient Greek scholars drank special potions made of opium from cultivated poppy seeds uh, they did wow. this for for enlightenment um <laughs> and and actually this this other greek scholar hippocrates used um uh, tinctures made of poppy uh, sap for healing and stuff like that so That's again interesting. They, in the earliest ancient civilizations substances were being used yeah it's really interesting as well because hippocrates is the father of medicine yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he would have been using these kind of strange healing potions and people would not know what the <laughs> hell are in them, but he would, you know, he'd be like, yeah. well, you know, these seem to do the job. <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. make people feel better. Yeah, yeah. Um, not knowing how addictive they were, you know. Um, And so, like, another perfect example is actually even in the Bible, one of the first things that Noah did when he got, got off his ark was make a vineyard. To make wine. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, and like ancient Egyptians drank a sedating water made of lotus flowers, and early Islamic civilizations consumed hashish and coffee regularly. So, like thousands of years ago, civilizations were finding these things that altered their minds and their bodies a little bit in, in one yeah. way or another. Um, I mean, I, I kept reading. Uh, this story about uh, Arabian farmers found caffeine. Their goats were really excited and frolicking all the time. <laughs> and the farmers noticed that they kept eating off these particular leaves and they turned out to be coffee leaves. So wow. the and coffee leaves have a slight bit of nicotine or coffee leaves have a slight bit of caffeine in them as well. So hmm. uh, that's how that started thousands wow. of years ago. But then even the, the kind of first accounts of addiction are go back to ancient Greece. And so Aristotle and his teacher Plato, they both recorded this, that people were kind of becoming dependent on, on things. Wow. And actually Aristotle believed that alcoholism uh, was, you know, an excessive dependence on a substance was not the fault of the substance itself but of the will of the addicted person. Mm. So it was the other way around back then. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he actually called the problem acrasia um, or or incontinence of will. So people Mm. who were acratic couldn't control themselves enough to be able to stop imbibing. Okay. So, um, and then later Plato also pointed out that in Carthaginian law, soldiers weren't allowed to drink while uh, marching so they weren't able to drink wine 
when they were on the mm. move. And yeah, that they yeah, should yeah. drink water instead. So they knew this like <laughs> right back thousands of years ago that you you really shouldn't be getting pissed on the job. Yeah, yeah. You know of what course. I mean? Wouldn't be hard to tell, to be fair. But uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah. But he went on to say that uh, you know pregnant women shouldn't drink wine either, and he actually wrote, and this is quotations. Uh, it's not right that procreation should be the work of bodies dissolved by excessive wine but rather that the embryo should be compacted firmly, steadily and quietly in the womb. Back then, they even thought that excessive maybe dancing and and even frolicking, you know, maybe if a pregnant woman was enjoying herself and she was dancing around, they're like, yeah, you know, is that is that good for the baby? So, you know what I mean? Wow. And, and maybe they were completely wrong, which they probably may, might have been um, in terms of dancing and stuff. But in a, in a strange way, they weren't about the drinking um, yeah. or at least excessively. And then moving like 2000 years or two and a half thousand years into the future in the Middle Ages, Christianity had a firm hold on Europe and therefore it was considered a sin to overindulge in the drink. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this didn't stop the clergy from getting hammered during pagan <laughs> feast traditions and consuming large amounts of alcohol as an ex- an escape from the yeah. harsh conditions. You could only imagine that there was literally barely any medicine. In fact, the only medicine was probably addictive. But at the same time, it was difficult because people who uh, seemed to have alcoholism were considered to be of low character. And so in some cases, they were jailed they were tortured and they were executed as they were thought to be possessed by demons it's absolutely crazy and like you have to think of things like the inquisition and stuff like that where anything foreign anything out of the ordinary was a sin and and some of these sins were punishable by death like over in the ottoman empire you know near turkey punishment for smoking uh in the 1600s was beheading what yeah so if you were smoking, smoking, yeah, if you're smoking hashish or tobacco off with the head, let's move up another another hundred or so years. So like by the 1500s, 1600s, when Europeans colonized the Americas, everyone over there was drinking, Andrew. They were all at it. OK, mm-hmm. anyone ro- running for local political positions were expected to give away free alcohol. What? Yeah. <laughs> expected. <laughs> they, they, yeah, like they wouldn't get elected if they didn't serve a free bar. Bring it back. <laughs> <laughs> what are our politicians doing now? <laughs> but like historians even write of parents giving their babies sugary sips of their hot toddies, you know, with their their hot whiskies and wow. or their hot rums. And after the American Revolution, US citizens began mass producing whiskey to a point where it was actually cheaper than things like beer and milk. Wow. So That's you could outrageous. get whiskey by the litre or by the whatever, by the gallon, um, by the barrel probably. <laughs> um, and it was cheaper than milk. Um, and then by, by 1830, an average US citizen older than 15 drank about 25 litres of pure alcohol a year. Whoa. That's that's crazy given, I'll talk about what the kind of global average is now. That yeah. is really, really high. It's about five 20. times as high as a global average right now. Oh my God. So a lot. Okay? That's outrageous. Yeah. 25 litres. So there was some extreme heavy drinking going on in the US especially. So, you know, I'm talking a lot about consumption of substances, but I'm not really talking about, well, were people becoming dependent and, and, and you know, when did this start being documented? But actually with the colonies, the, the colonies severely affected the Native American tribes. And actually, mm. a nat- Native American tribes also got access to these new substances, alcohol um, and tobacco and everything. And there were serious epidemics. Of there was a, well, there was a serious epidemic for alcoholism, particularly in the Native American uh, tribes at the time. Yeah. Um, and so, but amazingly, those Native American tribes, and they actually still do this today, they use these things called sobriety circles. And they're often led by a wounded healer. Someone who has already gone through alcoholism and won the battle against it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what you can compare that to now maybe is something like a an AA meeting in that 
you know, there's uh, someone who had been afflicted by um, addictive disorder in the past and they're actually helping everyone as a community, as a communal thing. So it's amazing that that was already yeah. going on. <laughs> you know, it's it is kind of a simple idea when you think about it, but it's amazing that this these this way of rehabilitation and healing uh, people with addictive disorders only really comes into effect like in the modern era. It's fascinating. I imagine it comes back to a Western perspective on the person and a a Native American perspective on the person because like you said earlier with the early way that people like Hippocrates would look at people suffering from alcoholism or people drinking too much was saying that you're what, ecratic? You're ecratic? You're... Yeah. You're, you you had weak will. So yeah. they were, they yeah, were blaming... Your, will, the, your they, willpower is not enough. And uh, that that's like a very deep problem uh, that's stemming, that stemmed through quite a lot of uh, medicinal research because for a very long time it was kind of like... Uh, if it's true for me, it's true for you. And if something's wrong with you and I can control it, that's a you problem. That's a you as an individual problem. That's not a sidestep. You know what I mean? They were, that's yeah. the way it was looked at, as opposed to people who had a vulnerability. They didn't see it that way. They saw the person, not the physical vulnerability. They saw the person. And I would, I would bet my socks that in the Native American tribes, they viewed alcoholism as something which inflicted the body of the person and not the person I would absolutely I would think that the from the very very bare bones knowledge I know about uh, Native American culture is that that would come naturally to them to identify as a problem that this is something that in, is inflicting the body of the person and not inflicting or a case to be made against the individual so yeah. it, it, it's fascinating that they realize that that community support could exist and help that's just the huge point is that community support they care about the people around them they're very aware of the people yeah. around them and um, so uh, that is why they were able to deal better with these things mm-hmm. but not to say that they dealt better because you know these new substances were actually and, and these addictive disorders were actually quite rampant in those populations because they just they had never been in contact with these things before you know of course but actually it gets a lot worse in the actual you know the colonizing population when the american civil war broke out in the 1800s and this actually kick-started another huge wave of substance abuse in particular alcohol and morphine were given so morphine is an opioid Mm -hmm. um, and andrew already talked about how opioids affect your body and your brain but Morphine is a very potent sedative. And so this was given out liberally to wounded troops. Like, you know, they didn't realise how addictive it was, um, its addictive properties. Um, and yeah, they didn't really know the consequences of this. Um, but like during this time in in the middle of and just after the Civil War, about 100,000 troops from both sides were addicted to morphine or about 100,000 troops from both sides had addictive disorders because and a dependence on morphine. Yeah, it's mad. And so, you know, one Civil War soldier even said this about his withdrawal symptoms after the war and after he's, you know, stopped being given access to morphine. He said, no tongue or pen will ever describe the depths of horror in which my life was plunged at this time. The days of humiliation and anguish, nights of terror and agony through which I dragged my wretched being. Wow. Yeah. Crazy stuff. It's, It's extremely deep. That description of the bar by morphine and the pleasure and like reward system the bar is raised so high that there's no more enjoyment in life everything is dull and negative and depressing because the bar is too high yeah nothing else can and that's that's what he's describing yeah it's just everything is pain everything is completely abysmal and depressing and that's that's an outcome of it yeah And, and if you feel that way what would you do you'd fix it yeah, you would fi- you would fix it by the only thing that 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 will will make you feel good again, and and so you know, 
it is a, a very kind of it's a very sad topic and and you know a lot of these these veterans were unfortunately and and really it's a sad thing that most of them are actually incarcerated after because of these the effects of this addictive disorder would you know a lot of these people became homeless or they would end up robbing something or or committing a crime just to get make enough money um to get some more of of these substances but you know to make matters maybe a little bit worse was that the the and the u.s like you know did this happen anywhere else but uh the prohibition in 1914 in the u.s was when all substances were pretty much banned for a couple of years like alcohol and anything anything you can think of um and so everything went underground and the you know the probably the quality of things and uh became probably dangerous even more so and things got even worse and during that time the country was completely removed from the idea that this was a disease and that this was something that needs to be cured with community and with compassion and empathy and so that was a bleak time, you know, and it didn't really change until after the Second World War when things like the 12 step process came in. Um, and this is kind of what's even used in modern times is this 12 step process of recovery and rehabilitation and the use of compassion and the use of community and the use of dialogue and expressing your your feelings and emotions and with other people who are in the same boat, so to speak. And and finally, in about 1956, uh, alcoholism in particular was considered a disease that can be managed and 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 even cured using these these techniques that I talked about. Yeah. And that kind of brings us up even to the to the modern era because uh since then the the techniques and uh that are used today they're definitely more developed but they they are based off of this kind of 12 step um model that kind of brings us to modern addictive disorders. So there's there's two things that I just want to talk about as well. Um, in particular, I want to go back to uh, alcohol and I also want to talk about opium in particular. And we've talked about it a little bit. Opium and opioids, which is like when you when a when a chemist goes in and takes out the particular things that are extremely potent and give you those those kind of complex neurochemical hits of like and or want you know they're actually from this uh this plant called the opium poppy they act as extremely powerful painkillers and they have that side effect of euphoria from what we were talking about before Mm. so those uh type of opioids that really affected the world was that morphine during the u.s civil war and actually you know there were these like opioid wars there were wars fought for opium trade uh, between the British Empire and China which is absolutely crazy in the 1800s wow but actually in like the 19th century um the next drug was made and that was called heroin and that was produced actually by Bayer so Bayer is still a company today oh right and they produced they produced it as a pill and so it's a it was a prescribed pill for sedation and painkilling at the time poor immigrants in cities were buying these pills getting them from pharmacies and crushing them and snorting them okay and um, nice. so it wasn't it didn't turn into something that you had to inject for actually several years later and i'll explain why but after laws were put in because basically they figured out that this was really well too easy to uh, get from pharmacies they imposed laws and uh and and then this illegal heroin trade kind of exploded in this black market uh, of of kind of really hyper addictive heroin came into play and you know the reason why it must be injected today is because heroin that is on the black market is cut what is called cut but it's basically so much other stuff is put into it to to create more volume and more mass mm. that yeah, yeah, yeah. um you need to inject it straight into your blood sh- blood stream to um feel the full effects of it in terms of like a 
a pill it can be produced as a pill but it's just really not these days well at least not as heroin mm. and so actually you know in terms of an opioid epidemic there's one going on right now in the states and it started at about 1996 or in the 1990s from a pill called Oxycontin and that was produced uh, again it's a a sedative and a painkiller but again people didn't realise how addictive the substance was okay this was given out so freely in the 90s because the fact that people realised in the medical world that it was well known people were not getting enough pain relief in in hospitals and stuff so they were trying to counteract that with this brand new thing that came onto the to, yeah. onto the market and it was actually marketed heavily as something for anyone something for the housewife at the time to get and something for you know anyone at home can take it and it'll ease all your pain you know but turns out it's exceptionally addictive um mm. and and so like it's absolutely crazy because once they figured out that it was super addictive then they quickly dropped the supply and made it very difficult to get it um or at least you needed to be in quite a lot of pain to get it yeah, and yeah, then yeah. those people who can't get it anymore are now addicted and yeah. those people need to get some form of opioid off the black market and the most readily available one is heroin so there's this massive heroin epidemic right now in the states it's absolutely crazy it's actually estimated that about 16 million people worldwide are addicted to some form of opioid and in 2019 uh, 50,000 people died from opioid related overdoses and this is actually this is an upward trajectory this is supposed to even increase even more so wow. that's why they're calling it like a proper it is a they're in a state of emergency in the states about this because they're like this is this is that's this is nuts. crazy. This is just it's it's a it's a it's a huge problem that is out of control. And then that other thing that I wanted to talk about was just actually, I mean, we're all so well aware of it is alcohol. Me and Andrew are having a few cans right now and we're enjoying ourselves with a couple alcoholic beverages. Can I interject with a, a fact to maybe relieve some of the tension just to throw in between these two things? Of course. There's an interesting family of drugs around heroin, right? Mm-hmm. Where mm-hmm. You have three main pain-killing drugs which are related to heroin, which is heroin itself, morphine, and codeine, right? Yeah. Codeine is the smallest and it's the least effective because it's small and it's not very specific to the receptors it goes after to relieve pain. Yeah. Morphine's the next one up. It's right in the middle. It it, it brings about the pain-killing effect without being too as addictive as heroin Mm -hmm. and then heroin is the next one up which is just massively addictive and also will relieve a huge amount of pain but did you know the next big brother of heroin you can buy from any pharmacist any pharmacist and if you've ever gone to asia you've definitely used it heroin's big brother is loperamide or emodium which you take when you have the runs whoa they are the next step up Imodium and loperamide. Wow. And this is just a side note to maybe bring everything down, but there, there, it is an opiate, right? And what loperamide does, and the reason it's used for uh, treating diarrhea, is it the molecule is too big to pass through the gut and the blood-brain barrier. It's too big. It can't. So if you swallow it, it will go all the way through your gut and out the other side without getting into your bloodstream because it's too big a molecule, right? It's the biggest big brother. But along the way, what it does is it numbs the mother load out of your gut. And your gut can no longer pass and move, which gives you relief uh, relief from your diarrhea. Wow. And that's how... That's how Imodium works, yeah. That's really cool. It just even in terms of the size and it, it just can't go into your bloodstream. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought that would be a, a, a fact to break up, maybe release a little bit of tension in a <laughs> yeah. very intense topic. Because uh, it is an intense topic, but it's just yeah. like, it, it's important to know. Like, oh, you know, sure. and, and even from the, the fact that you, fr- from the perspective of alcohol, like, as I said, 
we were talking about the 1800s and people or even further back when people colonized America, uh, it was like 25 liters a year of pure alcohol. The world average right now is six liters. What? Six. But that's actually a bottle of wine a week per person. Okay. Okay. So that's not a crazy amount. No. But as we all know, this is not distributed equally no, across the world. Because you have some places in the world where uh, people still don't drink. It's uh, it's not in line with their culture. Um, and in other places, it is heavily in line with their culture to drink and to drink excessively. Yeah. So... Yeah, so that's that global average is only is, is six litres. It's five times as, as small as, as what it was. But globally, about uh, 100 million people are estimated to have an alcohol use disorder today. So it's it's still quite large, like 100 million yeah. people. But again, there's that huge variation. Um, So to bring it back to us, Andrew, me and you were living in Ireland, small country in the western edge of Europe. Um, We actually have the fifth highest annual alcohol consumption rate and Irish people spend the most money per capita in the world on alcohol. It's a uh, it's it's a real shame that some stereotypes live up to. Yeah, well, story I, I, was, them. I was pleasantly surprised when I saw that Ireland wasn't the highest in terms of alcohol consumption. The highest in Europe yeah. and in the world, I think, is Moldova or uh, it's it's Moldova's very high and um, Belarus. Oh, okay. so they just have the highest and it's 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 like 17 litres and we're at Whoa. 13 litres of pure alcohol okay, per wow. person per year. So it's like two and a half bottles of wine a week which is very high it's very high so like yeah in terms of people with alcoholism Ireland has twice as many people who suffer from alcoholism as is the kind of global average so there are certain countries where this is a serious problem. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. That That is absolutely amazing. Uh, just even thinking about it, because it, it's, I I suppose, to our culture, it's so normalized. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and not only that, but it's also tabooed at the same it's time. Kinda, it it's kind of, it's like, tabooed. West, it's like you, Western European, kind of Northern European culture. We, we, yeah. we all come together because... It gets real dark in the winter and we we have this pub culture and, and yeah. the pub culture brings the drink culture. And you know what I mean? But it's not just that. I, there's also a culture there of uh, it's Christmas or uh, it's a week, week night. <laughs> you know, let's have. Do you want a beer? Yeah. Do you want that? Or we're at a wedding. Let's have a drink. You know, let's have a few drinks. But at the same time, no, we do not talk about that family member. Yeah. That's no, very, no, we do not. It's a great point. We, we, it's extremely normalized. It's like, oh yeah, we we all do this, but also we do not talk about talk about it. The and, issue, uh, yeah. That's that's not. And like the thing is, is that you almost every family just by sheer, you know, the Kevin Bacon rule of that you're what five degrees of people away from Kevin Bacon at all <laughs> times. Like, uh, but it's the same thing with having someone around you has a relationship with alcohol yeah. that it has gotten to that stage mm-hmm. and it, it, it's very very common and I, I just feel like that's something in Irish culture that um, it's something that it's something that we share clearly with a lot of countries though um, yeah but the, I think another interesting thing to say is that strangely uh, America is very low on the list today strangely because <laughs> the their colonies were drinking like fish yeah. Um. The, the the early colonists like they were drinking whiskey like it was water, and then now they're yeah. like you know in the middle they're literally mid table of three hundred countries in the world. Well, where where did when did the prohibition end? You know, by no, any chance? No, I don't. I don't. But it started in nineteen fourteen. No. It couldn't have lasted more and than five it, years. I imagine it was pro. Yeah. So it was probably something like that. But that that whole environment. Of uh, everything that goes on and everything that people must have seen of the the pain and all that. I imagine most people's grandparents would definitely not encourage any drinking. Yeah. 
and it would not it would not be something you'd have at the dinner table. It wouldn't be needed. Um, but even anything com- like but that, even it commonly, and, and you going back to this pub culture that you're talking about uh, in the US, commonly there wouldn't be that sort of pub culture, and it would be more of yeah. a enjoy your meal and and have a couple of drinks in moderation and enjoy your time. <laughs> Yeah, and, 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 yeah, for sure. and don't go crazy. And in, in Ireland, it's like it, it seems as if you're crammed into a small pub space and it's just like anything goes. <laughs> yeah. You know? I don't know. It seems like we're all anxious creatures and we all want to socialize at the same time. So we remedy it in a very unhealthy manner. That's to have our socializing. Perfect. Because, uh, explanation like that that is it in a big way because um i love spending time with my friends you know having a chat and all of that but at the same time i'm a little bit nervous of if someone's in the kitchen and making dinner so i might just stay upstairs and get a little hungrier and wait till they're gone yeah 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 exactly you know it's the same thing uh it's just interaction with people and if i had a drink i wouldn't care and i i think it's probably back to that social thing if we were just very social creatures which does lead to the the next thing which i want to talk about which is smoking yeah and tobacco yeah. which is a uh, something which is also extremely common um and smoking is such a huge it, it, it'll be such a fascinating thing to look back on and i'm sure that uh, in a few years there'll be a history documentary of the way that tobacco and smoking was sold as a product yeah and how it was it will be good for your lungs this will make you healthy it will you'll live a long happy life it's like the birth of marketing oh absolutely what a have you ever seen an an old camel ad yeah they're incredible they're incredible like you know Uh, even now knowing how bad cigarettes are for you health wise Mm-hmm. I'll watch one of those camel ads and it just like gives me this like great nostalgic feeling and I'm like, ooh, maybe that would feel it, nice to smoke a yeah, disgusting it's, cigarette. It's absolutely disgusting. <laughs> you know, like it's, uh, but it's crazy. And it, it, what's fascinating about it is how the whole thing of smoking is, it was like one of the first, uh, we sell it and we make so much money off of it and you can't stop. So we'll keep making money off of it. And it's yeah. a, a loop that just keeps on going. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that like, and we're seeing it today in the way that we remedy smoking is that tobacco, 95% of the things in tobacco that you smoke are not addictive. Though that 95% of things is what's trying to kill you <laughs> and give you lung cancer, but it's not addictive, yeah. Yeah. right? What's addictive in it, which I'm sure is common knowledge, is nicotine, Mm -hmm. right? And nicotine is addictive. And nicotine literally acts on the reward pathways in your brain, increases dopamine to give you that feel-good feeling, right? To give you that kind of kick. And nicotine tricks your brain by conditioning to make you think that smoking equals this sensation. Smoking as a behavior equals more nicotine Mm -hmm. okay so it's like oh okay more nicotine and then if you have more nicotine you get more dopamine which is how you develop an addictive disorder because this is why people tend to smoke more and more because they develop a a certain numbness again to smoking so one cigarette doesn't do it they need three Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. what i mean they and then people you and you know people and we've all met someone who will smoke 10 to 20 cigarettes a day they just they can't not they're they're dependent on it but what's interesting now and it's absolutely it it goes a long way to show how we have changed the way we understand addiction is how we now treat people who are addicted to smoking where it's completely different it's you wear a patch that gives you the nicotine and relieves you of the want to smoke which is bizarre in a certain way you were some people could be addicted to smoking for 10 to 20 years and they slap a patch on their arm and they no longer they'd like a cigarette, but they don't, you know, fighting for yeah. it. They're not. It, they, it, they've lost that super core drive. Mm-hmm. And e- even in things like the chewing gum and like the chewing gum was an interesting one because the chewing gum was designed to give you the nicotine and also replace the behavior, replace the I'm going to go for a smoke with the I'm going to chew the gum. 
and you're associating the chewing with the nicotine coming in and you're just replacing the smoking behavior with the nicotine. Sure, it's bad for your teeth, but, you know, you could lose your teeth and still have two perfectly good lungs by the time you're 80. Yeah. It's called dentures. You know, <laughs> it's called, yeah, it's called dentures. <laughs> but like, it, it's fascinating. And then you even see things like vaping, you know, which is, again, interesting because that vaping gives you the relief from the need to smoke and doesn't force you to change your behavior. You still go out and smoke. You're just smoking a vape, mm-hmm. you know, puffing clouds. No, and, but you need, you know, it's like... I understand it because I have a really bad habit that I bite my nails and it's mm. a disgusting habit. Like, you know, there's no, there's no denying that. But um, there's something to do with, it's actually to do with me putting things to my mouth. Um, I'll chew a pen. I will just, I, yeah. it, like, I, I need to, I, I don't know what it is, but I understand that need to repeat yeah. emotion. So when you're chewing yeah. nicotine gum, it's not the same. I, I don't know, Aiden, when you said that you have a need to put things to your mouth, there was a there's a Freudian psychologist somewhere <laughs> going, like, oh, oh that oh, one well. is not well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he is not good. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're going, oh. So how's your relationship with yeah, your Yeah, yeah, how's your relationship uh, with your family? <laughs> Are you okay? But it is true. But like, that's that's a fascinating thing about smoking in particular, where it's you you associate the addictiveness of nicotine Mm. with the behavior of smoking. It's like a it's an association Mm -hmm. thing, you know, where, oh, I I will get this good feeling if I smoke, even though they're not, you know, the smoking itself, what you are doing, breathing in all of this toxic sludge into your lungs. That's not what you're addicted to. You're addicted to the meddling it's doing in your brain. Wow. Yeah, which is uh, crazy. And uh, the next thing I want to talk about is different to the rest of what we talked about, but also extraordinarily common, which is we talked a lot about like substances of abuse. Mm-hmm. But now it's, I want to talk about a behavior, which is gambling and uh, those who gamble. And to, to kind of define it carefully is to ref- gambling refers to when you risk something valuable to gain something even more valuable, Mm -hmm, okay? mm -hmm. It could be a compulsive urge to gamble if you're someone who has a uh, problem with this behavior where you might be in a casino, you might use scratch cards, you might always get a lottery ticket, slot machines, or betting on sport. You know, it's, it's, you put down two euro and you hope you get a thousand back and you do this compulsively. The reason that gambling is an interesting one it's because it kind of goes back to these evolutionary roots that I was talking about earlier, where it takes advantage of your risk-taking brain. Because there's a part of your brain, right, within this whole system where we were talking about we have fear and we have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, there are moments in human history where you had to look at a big animal and go, instead of going, ah, and run away and save your life, you had to go, okay, spear up, I need to overcome this yeah you needed to take a risk of something valuable your life (laughs) to get something even more valuable which is not only your life but the life of your family and potentially your community yeah that's so there's a risk factor there that overcomes and taking these risks successfully the reward and motivation pushes down your anxiety and pushes up your desire Mm -hmm. It, it flips that's the biological mechanism which gambling moves through. Yeah. It's going, I am taking a risk and I'm hoping for a huge reward. And that is, again, super, super deep. And it's why um, evolutionary mammals couldn't really control their resources because you need to take a higher risk than foraging to hunt something. You'd have to take a huge, huge risk to get this big thing. And that's what you wanted. Foraging was very small reward for a gentle gain. And it's, you know, it's common. You get, you take it for granted. Yeah. You know, yeah. you take it for granted and you still get that motivation. I need to get bigger. I need to do better. I need to get more resources. I need to do all of these things. Mm-hmm. You can't just be happy with farming. Like the agricultural uh, revolution didn't get super efficient for a very, like quite recently you know, in the evolutionary timescale yeah, of humanity, yeah, you yeah. know what I mean? So this this tool is that when you take this risk and you win, you get dopamine. When you take this risk and it turns out that the 
downside of the risk wasn't that bad and that you survived, you get dopamine. Oh my goodness. When when you have a close call, like you maybe you, uh, I don't know, maybe you said uh, red 23 and you got black 24 on a roulette table. That was close. You get dopamine. That was, that was worth risk. You get dopamine. Wow. And it's, it's this system which drives you because you're not really losing you're just gaining gaining you're taking risks and they're maybe paying off and you're getting closer and closer and biologically you need to do that you need to like push and push and push this limit to go far wow and the thing is is that people who who get stuck with this behavior they they become numb to losing money they eventually you're want system completely suppresses your fear and any f- loss sensation. Yeah. You, you don't have that anymore. It's numb because you're so pushed towards getting that next big win. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that then you start t- making bigger bets. You take bigger risks to get bigger rewards. Or you have used your money and you need to make bigger bets to recover a loss. Mm-hmm. And you're stuck. That's the cycle. You, either way, you're either going to be spending your bets to uh, getting, they're going to get bigger, they're going to get bigger, they're going to get bigger because you've become numb to smaller bets and you're it's really the reward pushing you. Or you're trying to recover from a loss, which means you have to make bigger, more risky bets to make your money back. Crazy. Yeah. That is amazing, Crazy. man. I like, yeah, because I, I didn't realize that you get dopamine for almost every action you do in gambling. It's risk taking, risk taking and surviving. Wow. That that's the thing. So the, the the reason with gambling that it's like that is because this is a societal risk taking. Mm-hmm. No matter the outcome, you're not dead. And the only way that the body really tells you this is a bad idea is if you get physically it's injured it's like unless it's threatening your literal survival it's going to say hey not bad yeah you know <laughs> yeah. it's gonna say hey you, you did pretty you were pretty close there yeah you know and it's crazy it's it's a again it's such another unfortunate manipulation of such a deep system which is just trying to keep you alive oh my god that's the whole point that you, you as a human being surviving hundreds of thousands of years ago you needed to take risks you did yeah you needed to take risks whether it was making the decision to go to war against a rival gang because they will kill you if you don't go first Mm -hmm. that is a risk which you have to overcome for your survival and your community's survival you know if you're so if you're again fighting a lion or anything like that but you see it in nature lions go after giraffes when they're hungry Silly lions, but they do it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know they they'll get a big ass kick. You don't. You just need to watch any uh, David Ashenborough uh, documentary to see that that is ridiculous and it's extraordinarily dangerous for a lion. Mm-hmm. But they have to take those risks. They can't just wait for a calf all the time. That doesn't work. No. You have to take they these have to risks go for the big kill sometimes. Exactly, and often they get away. Yeah, which is why they do it again and again and again, and they keep doing it. Oh, cool, dude. So one of the craziest things is that something you might not think is as addictive is things that we consume so regularly. Things like sugar, things like certain Mm. salts. And some people are aware of the fact that caffeine is a little bit addictive. But these things can be, you know, once you consume them enough, they can become very well not addictive but people can become dependent on them and so for instance with sugar historically simple sugars called in 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 terms of carbohydrates they're called mono and uh, uh monosaccharides um and complex carbohydrates are the things in bread and other things they're they're they take ages to break down in your body but these simple sugars they go straight into your bloodstream and your pancreas and your insulin for non-diabetics breaks that stuff down and gives you this super fast energy boost, but then you mm-hmm. crash really hard. Simple sugars don't occur naturally, really. Um, okay. Honey is maybe one of the only things. Sugar cane. Yeah. You have to boil that stuff down to make sugar, uh, simple sugar. Okay. But it's so common now and it's so cheap to make. 
And it's actually like really kickstarted this kind of obesity trend in the world and, and where, where especially over the past 20 or 30 years, like since 1975, the amount of people that are obese has tripled to today. Wow. It's tripled. And about 15% of people globally now struggle with obesity. And it's hugely because of this kind of maybe not a physical dependence on simple sugars, but a societal dependence. And actually, you know, sadly, one in every 20 people have an overeating disorder as well. So and a lot of the time, things like sugar and this other thing that I'll talk about, MSG, really play into that. Um, and so this MSG stuff that I talk about, you might have heard of it. It it was in a, a articles a lot in the past and has kind of been, it's kind of simmered since, but it's called monosodium glutamate. Your body makes these glutamates naturally. They occur yeah. all the time, but this is, our, and, and monosodium glutamate, it occurs naturally in certain things, um, oysters and other shellfish um, and seaweeds and stuff like marine stuff. Yeah, but it doesn't okay. really occur in terrestrial land animals and plants. Okay. Uh, yeah, um, it's really interesting. But a lot of stuff you eat today that's processed and tastes real good, real salty, really gives you that satiated feeling has mm. this stuff called MSG in it. And all it does is it just enhances the salty or the sweet flavor in the food. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But turns out that actually chemically... MSG is, it is addictive and you can build a dependence on it. Now, technically, it doesn't, you don't become properly physically addicted to it, mm. but it has these kind of qualities that make you want to eat more and more and more of that thing with that stuff in it. Why is it so savory? Why is it so sweet that I just want to eat more? In all your yeah. takeaways chances are that they have this stuff because it's kind of a cheat and in, in, it's a culinary cheat in that, you know, a really good chef will just slow cook something and natural glutamates will come out in the food. But if you just chuck this MSG on top, you don't need to do that. Wow. Wow. Um, but it's, it's amazing. And that other thing that I was talking about as well, like, I mean, caffeine, who doesn't know what caffeine is? Who doesn't drink oh, yeah. an energy drink? Who doesn't drink a cup of coffee or a cup of tea? It's just so, yeah. it's so natural and, and everyone yeah. around the world drinks some sort of tea or some sort of coffee and whatever. But caffeine itself is actually a stimulant drug and it occurs, of course, in low doses in, in coffees and teas. Um, But like, for instance, like 90% of Americans drink caffeinated drinks. And this is really similar for most other countries. Um, It's kind of different for alcohol, but for caffeine, it's very similar across the board. Uh, around mm. the country or around the world that people drink a lot of this you know on average uh, people drink two cups of coffee in the world a day wow. which is absolutely crazy um, and actually about 30% of people who regularly drink caffeinated drinks can acquire dependence on it and may suffer withdrawal symptoms if they su suddenly stop drinking them so I don't know if you've noticed this but I have personally where I drink like two cups of coffee a day at least and I do get things like headaches or tiredness or it'll become a little irritable if I don't get my morning coffee yeah. and chances are that I I am actually physically have a, a dependence on caffeine so yeah. and so look it's like you know one in 30 people have it. So if you know someone who <laughs> who who drinks uh, two or three cups of coffee a day, chances are they have this dependence, you know? Oh, I, I'd be the exact same with fizzy drinks. And I, it actually gets quite bad in the point that any when I'm stressed, that's what I want. Wow. When I'm stressed. But like, it, it, it doesn't have to be like, oh, I'm sad. Like, it could be like first thing in the morning. And it's like... <laughs> Oh, I have so much work to do. Mm -hmm. um, but like, but that could also be because I don't like coffee. Yeah. Uh, okay. I don't. But but like, I know full well that whenever I have a lot of writing to get done, my whole body desires a can of Monster. And 
Monster is such a like it, it kicks you and it, oh, monster, you feel, f- monster gives me like oh. heart palpitations like yeah, monster it, <laughs> monster makes my heart pump <laughs> and it, it's not good and you can you can it, the bad thing about it is that you can feel it going through your body mm-hmm. but then i also get this heightened sense of concentration awareness. and oh, awareness and awareness and i can work and that's the problem because i know i work better and harder after a can of something that I can still feel going through my intestines. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Your stomach's churning, but you're like, but I know everything that's going on right now. It's exactly. And um, I'm I'm glad I'm not alone for one, but it is, it's crazy how dependent it is because I, when I have a stressful day at work, I need a fizzy drink at some point. Interesting. Maybe it's a part of the last couple generations in that we kind of expect this level of alertness and attention. And our attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. And, And I think that maybe we're impatient in that we're like, I, I need to be better right now. And I know that I can do this thing that will make me quicker. Well, I think it's... You are trying to, like, like I said before, when we were talking talking about some of the substances, something is addictive if it requires very little motivation to get a very high reward. So if you have to do very little work and get a extreme reward for it, you're going to keep doing that. That's great. The body likes that. Mm-hmm. If if you're pushing that thing, yeah. And the thing is, is that that's what a lot of modern companies are trying to do. Okay. And the best example of that is social media. Social media is trying to give you the fastest, easiest, low effort, positive jump in your system that it can. Yeah. The quickest. And today's example. So uh, 10 years ago, it was Facebook, right? And the design of Facebook was to play on your social aspect. OK, so humans are social creatures. Mm-hmm, OK, mm-hmm. I'm very introverted. I may not sound it, but I am. I'm very happy to spend 18 hours a day on my lonesome. Very happy to do that. Yeah. That's I like that. Um, and I, I spend weeks without talking. I'm happy. Yeah. Um, but like, I still need people in my life. Mm-hmm. That's just human. You you care about your family because it's human. You enjoy having friends because you're human. And the thing is, is that. Facebook made interactions with humans easier than ever before. And not just easier, but more, more humans. Because you could put up a picture of yourself looking well or maybe having graduated or something. And you get like a hundred likes, something like that. That happens to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You post something like that, you get a hundred likes. Before Facebook, if you went to a graduation... Did you get a hundred people come up to you, pat you on the back and say, good lad, and move on? You did not. Exactly. You, n- you would never get Imagine, that. It yeah, was... it's, 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 that's that first time you get that. It's like, wow, a hundred yeah. people are in a circle around me applauding. Exactly. Crazy. And that's the like, that, and it's feeding on that system. And you just want to keep going back because you like it. They liked it. They like you. It's nice to be liked. I'm going to go back on. I'm going to post something else. I'm going to like someone else's post because I know that that's a good feeling. And it's a loop and it just keeps you going. But it turns out that that wasn't the final form. That's not the final form of what social media is meant to be. Okay. Because there is a movement and you see it. There's a movement in from Facebook to Instagram and a movement from Instagram to Twitter or to something like that where now it's Facebook was quite detailed and it was quite personal whilst now you have things like YouTube you have things like Reddit you have things like Instagram and you have things like Twitter which are just feeds of information okay quick snappy extremely quick to move on to the next thing and you get all of this like 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 I like this I like that I like this I like that and when you post something people like it and that's satisfying it doesn't matter if you're scrolling Reddit and reading information and you get to curate what you're reading. You get to choose what pops up for you by following things and everything you see, you like it. You like everything you see because you're deciding that. Mm-hmm. But it turns out and the, the most popular today is TikTok. And TikTok, from an engineering point of view, is brilliant. Like from a point of view of if you had to design something 
to be as easy as possible to get content at your fingertips that made you feel positive or good or intrigued or take your attention for the least amount of effort, it's TikTok. Yeah. You literally download the app and it puts you on a page that all you have to do is scroll up and it is only going to show you things that you like. And you know what it even does? When you first go on the app, it can take measures of how long you spend looking at each video. Oh and the God. videos that you spend more time looking at, it'll give you it more gives that. you more like that. So it does all the work. On TikTok, you don't even have to curate what you like. It develops it for you for the lowest, the lowest amount of effort. You literally download it and it goes on before you've set up your profile. That is insane. It is insane. The most it minimal is... amount of input oh, from but, the user. But that's the biological thing. You do not need motivation. All you get is reward. The only reason we have the want biological thing is because it takes work to get reward. If you take out the work, you just have reward. And you'll keep pushing that button. Wow. You will keep pushing that button. Like, um, to, to put it in a completely different context, there was a study of a monkey. And the monkey had water and food and all of that. And he had a button. And the button, the button made him orgasm. Oh, my goodness. So what he did was he pressed the button until he died. He just kept pressing the button and kept pressing the button and kept pressing the button and kept pressing the button. Because it was the lowest amount of effort for the highest amount of reward and that overtook everything. It's like very and simple mathematics. Yeah, it's very simple. Low effort, high reward. And that's what things like TikTok are trying to do. It's the, it's so easy and you become, it's an interesting kind of um, addictive behavior. Because it's not quite, it's not a substance, it's not a risk, it's, it's like a social or a cognitive kind of pleasure. Either you're learning or you're laughing or you're chortling or you feel like you're a part of a conversation or anything like that. And that gives you an uptick. That's so, and you want to keep coming back. It, it really plays into what you were talking about right at the start, how some of this or a humongous part of this is all psychological, no physical. Yeah. You're not putting anything physically into your body, but yet yeah. it is completely and utterly changing the way that you're thinking and yeah. and how you're being rewarded. And so, like, I, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but, you know, the, the kind of probably the average age of TikTok and, and these newer apps is is quite young. Yeah. And so is this a good is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I, I, I don't know. And I. I think a big reason why it's mostly with younger people is because they're probably more plastic in their brain in the sense that they haven't established like powerfully what defines as a reward for them. Yeah. Okay. People who are much older might not get any pleasure from something like that because their brain has is hardwired. It's no longer open to movement. That does not give them pleasure. Yeah. They can see humor and they can enjoy that, but that doesn't mean they're going to flip and move on to, oh, this is now the thing that gives me, uh, I, I do very little work and I get a big reward. I, Yay. I, I think that's how I know that I'm getting old because I, <laughs> I, I only downloaded TikTok two weeks ago and oh my goodness, it's, it's overwhelming. I find yeah. that it's overwhelming. There's so much information and it's crazy how much information is about now. I know. And to be honest, I love it. <laughs> I, yeah. I can't help it. Like, I, I, you'd swear I'm admitting to something shameful. I think it's like, it's so entertaining. Yeah. And I, it's just like, it's chaos. It's amazing chaos. Like, you're, you're, <laughs> you're seeing people do, you're seeing people do the same thing over and over again. And for some reason, each time it's funny. And the maybe, but you know what? Honest, honestly, the thing is that in a minute, I could scroll through like six videos, flick, 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 and I'll only remember the one I liked. I've, for, I've forgotten that I skipped past five that I thought were bad. Wow. And I just, I remember that. But you do. That's the, that's the nature of it. Amazing, and man. It, it's, it's, it is, it's, 
amazing how well engineered something like that is. And now there's a lot of horrible things around TikTok um, regarding data, but that's definitely a cool discussion for another day. Um, yeah, honestly, I think that this whole discussion, and I'm, I think that at this point we should just say it is so complicated. The whole system of the body and the way that we manipulate this deep core of the human condition, whether it is using a substance, whether it is using a behavior, yeah. or whether it is playing on our desire to be social. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly complex. And the right answer to what causes this is that there's so many causes. Mm-hmm. And honestly, honestly, just what it's something that you really have to sit down and appreciate over the course of a two-part episode in podcast form. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you people for listening to this and we'll see you on the next one. Gluck! This is the end of the podcast We hope you enjoyed your time If you're feeling generous and you're not completely skinned why don't you give us some of your money? Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Join our Patreon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.